What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both with their businesses and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here is always so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful online businesses. In this episode, I'll be talking to Ali Lefevre. Ali is a co-founder of Obedient, where she and her co-founder lead a small but talented team that has run brand marketing campaigns for companies like BuzzFeed, AT&T, Dell, and the Dallas Cowboys. Ali, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure to have you on here, Ali. The top of your homepage makes it very clear what you do. If I go to <laughs> obedientagency.com, at the very top it says in big, bold letters, we do all the shit that other branding agencies do, but funnier. What do other branding agencies yeah. do, and why aren't they as funny as you guys? Well, I well, I appreciate you uh, snooping around the homepage. I, I would say that when we what we mean by all the shit that other uh, branding agencies do, but funnier is we are doing what I think other agencies claim to do. Right? Is that we are we are helping build your brand in a way that gets you uh, brand awareness, brand attention through the use of creative, clever, converting campaigns and then uh and then design etc but i think the the spin for us is that all the things that other people are doing we deem tend to be pretty safe they tend to be pretty expected can be a little bit boring can be uh sometimes ineffective uh, a lot of times fear based or really preying on your audience's insecurities or inadequacies and really using fear as a primary tactic and so We do all the things that you want for your brand. So you want your brand to get attention and you want people to remember it and you want people to get excited by it and you want to, um, you know, increase sales and grow your business. But we do it in a way that's fun, that's feel good, that's funny, that is positive, that is different, that is surprising, and that is really unlike anything else you you see in the market. You said that a lot of marketing is fear-based. And on your website, you say the same thing, that you, you need to be willing to sell with fun, not fear. What does it mean mm-hmm. to sell with fear? Because that's not something I've heard too many people advocating, at least not in those terms. Yeah, I, I think it's become so commonplace. And it's it's really just permeated the marketing and branding culture that I don't think we often realize we are being baited with fear. But it is essentially any tactic that leads you to believe that you are somehow insufficient, inadequate, and that there is this external outside product that is going to fill some void inside of you, that is going to make you better, that is going to finally make you happy, that's going to finally give you the life or experience that you need. And that is a endless pit. And it is just the way that brands have primarily uh, targeted their audiences for so long. It's like, we have a skin cream that's going to make you look younger. We have a pill that's going to make you look thinner. Or just even that, you know, we have something that's going to make you a better business person. We're going to make your life easier so you can be a better parent. Like Everything is saying that you could be better than you are. So it's somehow tapping into there is something missing or inadequate about who you are right now. When you put it this way, I feel like I'm doing this. Indie Hackers is all about starting a company so that you can live a better life, you can make more money, you can have more control. Is this fear-based marketing to tell people that they can be better than who they are? No, I don't think it is all the time because I think you really do have to touch on someone's needs, right? You do have to understand what drives people and what their needs are, what is something that they want to aspire to. You you want to do all that. But 
I think you don't have to make someone feel shitty in order to make a sale. And so when we say use fun over fear is we think there is a way to tap into those needs and to understand your audience and to help them aspire to a better, more whole, more healthy, happier, joyful version of who they are. But um, allow that to be a process that feels good along the way, that it isn't manipula- manipulative, it isn't coercive, it isn't, you know, making them feel bad in order to, you know, then flip the switch and make them feel good. So, I mean, definitely people want to be, to aspire to be, um, to grow as people, right? But you don't have to do it in a way that makes them feel cruddy first. And I think that's the, that's why we say, you know, fun is, is a way better tactic that still yields the, the right results. Okay, so what does fun-based marketing look like? Can you give us an example? Yeah, so fun-based marketing, you know, as as we see it, is it is building a. Uh, so I guess I'll back up. So when we think of fun, we think of fun as a really wide spectrum. That fun is, uh, you know, it's a term that we we believe holds a lot of weight, and that it often doesn't get the credit it deserves. So fun as just an idea is something that can do a ton of heavy lifting for a brand. It is something that could provide excitement. It could build trust. It could create brand loyalty. It can create goodwill, endearment, kinship, familiarity. In terms of what it can elicit in an audience, is it, it, can, be, uh, it can elicit confidence in your brand. It can make your brand more relatable. It can make your brand more memorable. It can make it more impactful, compelling, unique, like all these different things. So when we think of fun-based marketing, we are thinking of this broader concept that has a million different shades and styles. And it's essentially a tactic, but a very smart tactic because people want to be in the presence of things that make them feel good. And that is brands included, right? So fun-based marketing is anything that is, it's memorable. It makes you smile. It's delightful. It's surprising. It's unexpected. It's it's all of these emotions that essentially draw out the best parts of your consumer. So example, um, there is uh, a really funny campaign out that just, that just came out uh, within the past few days. KFC is, is, has created this really fun uh, satirical influencer account on Instagram. And so they are using fun and a bit of, they are essentially lampooning the, the you know, Instagram influencers by creating this, this cool, sexy, hip, young version of the KFC kernel and creating this entire Instagram campaign that he is this like sexy, cool fried chicken influencer that he's also like repping other <laughs> brands. So it's very silly. It's very unexpected. It's very different. And it's gotten a ton of buzz, a ton of followers because it's enjoyable. People are engaging with it because it's, it makes them feel good because it's a, it's a fresh, it's something fresh on their, on their Instagram feed. And, and so it's a, it's a, an example of a brand, uh, doing something very, very, uh, silly, very unique, very different in order to capture attention. And then ultimately it, people are talking about it and people have a now more goodwill and endearment to that brand because it's, it's allowed your audience to really engage in a way that makes them feel really good and enjoy the experience. And so maybe just one very, uh, very, you know, silly, uh, real time example, but I mean, the cool thing about fun and humor is that it's, there's so many shades to it. So it's not just silly. It's not just playful. It can be really clever and witty. It can be very direct. It can be very dry to the point. It can be very savage. I mean, there's a million different shades that all evoke something different. So 
let's say that I am not KFC. Let's say I'm more of an early stage fledgling founder. I might not have a product yet. If I do, it certainly hasn't caught fire. Should I mm-hmm. be thinking about brand marketing? Is that something that even applies to me at this level? Or is it something that's really more for bigger, more established companies to worry about? I think it's never too early to think about your brand. I think often people, they, they wait till it's, I, wouldn't, I don't think it's ever too late, but I think that they wait too long to start to think about their brand. And I think really how you show up to the market and how you show up to your audience, that is a foundational element to any good business and any good brand experience is you want people to know who you are. You want them to understand you. You want them to like you. You want them to trust you. You want that. And in order to do that, they have to have a cohesive, consistent experience with you. And they also want to feel like you are more than just a brand, that you are, there's a human element to you, right? So that's, that's another, you know, great benefit of fun. It's a very humanizing quality that you can, that you can showcase uh, when you are putting your, your, you know, your business out into the world. Because of that, I think it allows a brand to evolve more organically because there's a really strong foundation there. People already, they already get who you are. They already start to understand components of your personality and that that is really easy to flex and pivot and to really grow from, from that cohesive, consistent standpoint. I think that, you know, if you're, if you're putting out all this, this chaos into the market, you know, I'm, I'm, dry and boring on my website. I'm, you know, I, I try to be very zeitgeisty and punny on my Instagram handle. I occasionally send out emails, but they're, they're really long winded. People don't really understand who you are. They don't really know what you're about. And that when someone doesn't trust an experience they have with you, they, they no longer trust you as a person or trust you as a brand. Because what I think we're all looking for is more than authenticity is we're, we're looking for integrity in a brand is we want to know that there is a consistent core value uh, that runs throughout everything that you do. And I think that that starts with building a really strong, consistent, cohesive personality. So I want to pick your brain here because you are an expert marketer. You've been doing this for many years. There's probably a lot of things that you've forgotten that a lot of people listening, quite frankly, have no idea. About. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of us are developers. We're not known for being particularly good at communicating or marketing what we're doing. Yeah. What are some of the things in this in this playbook that a founder should think about when they're trying to build a good brand? Yeah, I mean when we work with any brand, so any brand we have ever worked with since our inception, we take them through a multi-phase process, but I'll talk about two of those components that I think are really really important when building your brand, right? As an agency, we don't do everything. We aren't building brand. We aren't building your business infrastructure. We're not doing your finance and accounting. We're not doing any of that stuff, but we're really doing the creative elements of of who you are. So when we work with any business right out the gate, the, the first couple things we're doing is we're developing your position and also your personality. So when I say position, I mean, what is the thing that you do that is different, that is unique, that is compelling, that is uh, something that is unlike anyone else in your industry that would really set you apart, allow you to rise above the noise, allow you to really separate yourself from the pack? And we, can, we call that your hook. So what is the thing that's going to really hook in your audience because it's going to make them stop and go, huh, that's something I haven't heard before. Or that feels very fresh and that feels very different. So we really drill down is what is this really sticky, catchy hook that we want to 
cultivate for your brand. And, and it should be rooted in truth and reality. It should not be something that we're making up just to, just to be buzzy and just to be different. It, it should be rooted in the foundation of who you are as a brand. And often what we always find is that people come to us and they think that they, that they, you know, they come to us and they know their business. They spend their, all their time in their business and they really know their brand. And often the thing that they think is sexy and cool and exciting about what they do, we often don't end up agreeing. And so we're saying, yeah, that's really cool and, and unique, but that's not the thing that's going to really put you on the map, or that's not the thing that people are going to really pay attention to or talk about. So we're really trying to figure out what is that, what is that one liner soundbite that becomes the foundation of all the other things you talk about when you talk about your brand. That becomes kind of the through line that, you know, all, all arrows lead back there. And then the second thing is we, what we're developing is that is what is your personality? So based on this really cool, unique, different position and your goals as a brand or your goals as a business, your audience, your industry, you know, exciting things you have coming up down the pipeline, what is the emotion that you want to evoke in your audience? Do you want to build trust? Do you want to be uh, build uh, relatability, reliability? Do you want to be memorable? Do you want to be, uh, do you want people to, uh, really feel lighthearted in your presence. Like, what is the thing you really want to evoke from your audience? And so, what we're doing is we're starting to shape and build a personality around those core emotions that we want to elicit. And now, often, if we're working with a smaller business, it's it's often very times uh, you know aligned with the founders. It's we want it to feel like a reflection of who they are. We want to draw out, uh, you know, certain components of their personality and bring that to the forefront. Sometimes it's a bigger brand and, and we can kind of create more of an amalgamation. But at the end of the day, it should be consistent. So we're trying to build, uh, you know, think of like, you know, each as individuals, we have very unique personalities. And for people who've known us for 10 years, they can probably... Uh, really understand the components of our personality in a very synthesized way. And so that's, and that's what we, what we want to do for brands. It should feel like it's a person. It should feel human. It should feel tangible and understandable and likable and, and all of those, and those components. And so we are developing a personality so that you can start showing up in a very consistent way across various, um, components of your business. But the fun part about that is that just like a person, we, you know, sometimes we're more extroverted in, in one place and more, you know, uh, more introverted in another, or we're more outgoing in front of certain people. And we're a little bit more, uh, quirky when we're with our family, like whatever those little nuances are, you can have that same flexibility with your brand. There's with your brand's personality. There's still this core consistent personality, you know, at its epicenter, but then you can kind of flex on different platforms and, and maybe you're a little bit more loosey goosey on Instagram and you're a little bit more, uh, direct and to the point in email. And maybe your website is a little bit more educational, like whatever those components are, you get to have a lot of fun and, and flex and play. I just interviewed a really impressive founder. Her name's Daniel Baskin and she does She's like running 23 businesses simultaneously and she's got like this down to a science. She has like a whole like playbook of how she's going to make everything she does fun and jokey and novel. I mean, she has a company where she's branding fruit and selling them to conferences. She had a company where she was creating sweaters and putting them on drones so you could sort of have a knitted sweater for your drone. Oh my God. I love uh, but I can tell you from experience, like 
most indie hackers, most like first time founders are not thinking about any of this. They're not thinking mm-hmm. about any of the things that you suggested. They're not thinking about what kind of emotion do I want my company to evoke and my customers, partly through ignorance, I think, and partly because it's not immediately obvious like how that's going to, to help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess part of my goal in this interview is to walk you through your story and, and find out how you've learned the things that you've learned. But I also just want to like mine you for, <laughs> for information on all these things that founders are really struggling with, with copywriting and talking to customers and positioning themselves and evoking certain emotions and try to understand why these things are important, how we can do a better job. Yeah. And well, and what I'll, I'll say to that is, you know, standing out isn't a matter of taste in this day and age. It's a matter of survival. Most industries are saturated. It is very uh, difficult to come across a company that is doing something radically different than anyone else is doing in their industry. So often the thing that's going to set you apart is the way you talk about what you do, right? This is assuming that you are still, you know, you're presenting a high quality product or service. So that to me, that goes without saying, I I would never, ever align myself with a brand that is putting lipstick on a pig, you know? Um, So it's assuming that you are, you have integrity in what you do. You have a quality to the product or service you offer, but I think that there's this misconception that you are going to put your thing out into the world and that people are just automatically going to pay attention to it. It seems so personal and so unique to you because it's an idea that's sprung into your own mind. And so it feels fresh and it feels relevant and it feels new and it feels exciting. But the odds are it's not really any different than what is out there in the world already until you let people know that it is. And so often the way that you can do that is through the words you use when you talk about your brand. It's, it's through all of the way you communicate it and you message it and you market it and drawing out all the unique, cool, different, compelling parts of it. And I think that's something that people forget. I know we're going to go into my story, so I won't, I won't really dive deep into it. But before I was running, uh, obedient, I, I was doing brand strategy and branding for, for uh, sometimes solopreneurs or people who were, you know, kind of at the foundational stages of their business. And they'd come to the table and go, okay, I'm going to put my idea out into the world and here it is world and it's crickets. And then they're shocked and they're, they're flabbergasted and no one is buying and no one is paying attention and no one is talking about it and their Instagram followers aren't growing at all. And all these things that they think that just by putting something out into the world that all this magic is going to happen. And people don't buy from you until they care about you and people can't care about you until they know you. And so you have to give them a thing to know, like, and understand. And I think the cool part about fun is it's an, it's an enjoyable thing to know, like, and understand. So that's my little spiel on that. <laughs> When I first started Indie Hackers, it took about three weeks from idea to launch. And I spent probably a grand total of one day thinking about branding, marketing type stuff. And the other 20 days, I was just writing code, interviewing people, etc. And I made a few decisions. The first decision I made that I think was a good one was to call it Indie Hackers, to sort of name it after the people who would be in the community rather than name it something else. The second decision, which was a little bit more superficial, was I want my website to look different. And so every other website is light. I'm going to make mine dark blue just so if you read an article on Indie Hackers and you come back a second time, you remember that you've been Mm -hmm. here before. And the third decision was that I wanted it to be very transparent. I wanted people who come on the interviews on the website to share their revenue numbers because nobody else was doing that. And it seemed to me that people really cared. Are these decisions branding decisions? 
are there any other things that I could have done or been thinking about during that one day I spent on branding or should I have spent more days on it? Yeah. I mean, I think those are all good things that you thought about. I think that those are obviously have all been really effective. So that's great. I give you, I give you kudos for that because most people don't even get that far. <laughs> but I, I don't think um, branding is like a one and done thing. I think it's an evolving process and a, a brand grows along so, I mean, it, it is one and the same as your business, but it does it does take on a life of its own and it does grow alongside kind of the inner workings and, and different components of your business, right? Because it's kind of the front-facing aspect of what you do. For us as a business, we, we really, our, our outside matches our inside. So everything we preach and everything we talk about, we do internally. So that's really important for us is that the brand is more than just uh, the way you show up on stage that it really starts to permeate all parts of, of your organization. But if I were, you know, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm not saying anything to, to criticize any element of your brand because I haven't spent time with it. But Go I think it. just, but no, I, I don't even have anything critical to say. I would just say as like a, as more of like a broad statement, the things I would have spent time on is to understand, uh, you know, to really get a deep understanding to your audience's psyche. Like, you know, what are, what is what is uh, what are they what do they need what do they want to feel what do they need to experience really tapping into that emotional component of your audience because i think a lot of times people get caught up in demographic data and that's and that's important too i, I really recognize that it is but ultimately as 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 practical uh, and realistic as we think we all are and pragmatic as as business owners and business people is we are very emotionally driven so i think really taking time to understand your audience and understanding what is the message i need to communicate to them and w- what is a way i can communicate that message that will really resonate and so i think spending more time with kind of the core you know, the core elemental message and really understanding w- w- what is the way i need to say to shape that message and share that message that will really resonate and impact my audience and also saying and really understanding that your audience doesn't have to be everyone. You know, who is my diehard audience? Who are the people I really want to target? Who are the people I'm most excited to work with so that you can tailor your message and tailor your, you know, brand's experience to those people, uh, knowing that you don't have to reach everyone, that you really have to just get uh, in deep with the people who are, who are, who are your ride or dies. And, and so I would just have encouraged, you know, uh, and I would say that to, not just to you, but just to everyone is really spending time with that foundational stuff, because that is the thing that you, that's the, to me, that's the, that is the, uh, you're laying the bricks that everything else gets uh, built upon. And I think it's a, it's an important step that people are all, are, often trying to to do on the back end that they've built this foundation they've built this structure and they're trying to give it a new coat of paint as opposed to uh, making sure that it had really strong support beams to start. Ali, I'm going to I'm going to you to say something critical about the Indiacus brand before this episode is over, I promise. Yeah, um, no, I I, mean, I love it. I, I wouldn't be on your podcast if I didn't think you were doing something so amazing and I I mean you're an, a wonderful human being from from just our conversation so far. And I love what you're up to. So I'm here because I think you've done an exceptional job with developing a brand. So yeah, I'm here. I'm in it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I think everything you talked about in your previous speaking turn is great, but also tragically easy to ignore. If somebody is a developer, especially, but really anybody susceptible to this, it's so easy to get bogged down in the details of what your product does and how it works to get really excited about that kind of stuff too, to think so much about the different features you're going to build and all the wireframes you're going to draw and everything it's going to have and all the bells and whistles, but totally ignore like the emotional state of your customers. 
and totally ignore what their lives are like and what their hopes and dreams are and what kind of personalities they have and just neglect to build any of that into your product. Like you were saying, Ali, like you can't think about this stuff as an afterthought. It really needs to be part of the foundation of everything you're building. So if you're in that situation right now and you're listening to this podcast, I encourage you to take a step back and stop building for a little bit and think about who you're serving and what differentiates them from other people in other markets. Ali, I want to get into your story. So far, I've just been mining mm-hmm. you for advice. But let's go back to when you graduated college. That's a foundational point in a lot of our lives. Did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And did you know that you wanted to be a marketer? No, not at all. I was a, a psychology major. So when I started college, I went into college thinking I was going to be a veterinarian. After my first year of college, I quickly realized that that was not the world I wanted to play in. Even though I've loved animals my whole life, I grew up with a house packed full of them. I had uh, cats and rabbits and hamsters and spiders and turtles and frogs and all wait, sorts wait, wait, wait. of wacky stuff. Um, what spiders? I had a pet spider. Yes, I Why? love. I love like all animals, except alligators is the only thing I don't like. But what spiders <laughs> over alligators? Oh, any day. I would like. I would sleep in a bed nestled with them to to never have to face uh, an alligator. Gross. In my life. That's it. Podcast over. <laughs> we're done. And here. we're gonna cut here. But I saw. So I, I went into college thinking I wanted to be a veterinarian, and then I realized that I really loved people. I just get energy from other people. I'm an extrovert. I really love listening to people. I really love understanding the nuances of people. And I, and so I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a therapist. And so I switched my major to psychology. So I went all the way through my college career at the University of Michigan thinking I was going to be a therapist. And I got to my very last semester and realized, holy shit, I do not want to do this. I, I spent an internship in a, a adolescent drug abuse center. And it, I just realized like, wow, this isn't the demographic I, I want to work with. I, I empathize with it. I I, it was such a beautiful experience to be a part of, but it just, I, ne- I didn't feel like it tapped into the, the part of me that wanted to create or wanted to build. I think I had this desire to like better a, better a thing or better a situation. And I, I realized that that's not a good way to approach people, right? Is to have like, and you know, this desire to fix it. And so I realized, oh, wow, if, then that's probably not the right thing to do. So Anyway, I stayed uh, one more semester to get a second degree, and I ended up getting a communications degree with a focus in PR. I took uh, either seven or eight classes in one semester. It was brutal, but it was somehow the most organized I'd ever been my entire life. I had classes from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then a Monday night class. And I banged out a second degree, and I graduated. And when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to be in a more energizing environment. So my very first job out of college, I worked um, with the International Auto Show in Detroit. So I'm from Detroit, and that was such a popular event and experience that I was like, oh, maybe it'd be really fun to help plan the auto show. So I got a job at an agency called Gallon Rice. I was essentially uh, helping to plan the International Auto Show and really doing like account management. I did that for a few months and I was like, oh, this is so boring. It's just logistics and it's just confirming vendors. And this is not fun or creative or energizing at all. I felt like I wasn't like using my brain or getting to add value or ideate or any of these things I I started to really realize I, I really enjoyed. So without getting into 
too many, uh, you know, twists and turns. I moved to Hawaii for a little while and I, I was trying to, you know, figure myself out and find myself for a year in Hawaii. And then after a year there, I, I ended up coming back and, and taking a big kid job. And I worked at uh, my first consulting firm and I felt like it was the first time I really got to, to switch my brain back on in a really cool way. I got to, I got to have problem solve. I got to look at issues and, and come up with, you know, new, fresh solutions. I got to be uh, strategically creative. I, I got to do all these things that I didn't recognize initially. That was such a, an important part of my personality or the things I really would gravitated toward or things I really liked. And so I spent about six years working at various consul- uh, consulting firms. And then um, two uh, of the uh, principal and an engagement manager at one of the firms I was at, they left. Uh, they they were. I was at McKinsey, and they left, and they started a startup in Chicago. And it was when all the subscription box companies were really getting hot on the market. That was the, kind of the first influx of box companies where you were seeing Birchbox and Bulu Box and all these companies who were who were shipping you know monthly subscriptions to you and it was maybe you know you got a subscription of makeup or you got a subscription of you know pet products or snacks and and we were the first to market in the health and wellness space and so they brought me on as the VP of engagement and I was tasked to develop the branding and marketing for the company. It's, it's developing the brand's personality, the customer engagement experience, the visual experience and I think why they brought me on in that role is because I, even though I had worked with them at the consulting, the consulting firm, I had um, a blog, a lifestyle blog that I started. It was just a fun, silly pet project. And so I used to write a lot. And I often wrote um, about just everyday life. And I, and I always used humor and it was always fun and silly and playful. And I think they saw that and thought, oh, we can kind of smash these two components of her personality together and develop this weird role that I never thought I'd ever end up in. And so it was like, oh, I get to think strategically and I also get to be really fun and creative. And so it was the first time I ever had a, a job prospect or a career prospect that I was like, oh, wow, this could be a thing I'm really good at and I really like. And so I spent a year with them. And I loved my role, but it it was a pretty toxic environment. We had eight people quit in a week. It was just bad news Whoa. bears. And so I went and took a three-week trip to India. This is like the most cliche uh, white girl thing to ever <laughs> say in the whole world. But I, t- <laughs> I took a trip to India and I just think I got out of that toxic environment and just around these like lovely, wonderful amazing, kind people. And it just made me realize that like, I can't go back into that world, but I still want to be in that world, just not under someone else's rule. So I came back and I decided to start my first company. Now that was a really scary decision because I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had never, ever entertained being an entrepreneur before. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know a thing about starting a business. Um, I come from a family of really small time entrepreneurs, like everyone in my family are like hairdressers or a uh, florist, or they have like these little small, adorable mom and pop type shops, but no one had ever like built a digital business or built a business in, you know, uh, the two, the, you know, the 2010s. I mean, the, my, my family had been doing the same thing for 30 to 40 years. So no one was like coming hot in the scene with all this like new age advice to give me. 
And at the same time, I was getting married. And so we don't come from families that are financially well off. We come from very humble beginnings, myself and my husband. So we had to pay for our whole wedding on our own. It was just a, it was just a very unstable, scary time because we had a wedding to plan and we weren't planning something, um, you know, outrageous or audacious, but you know, we, we both have big families. And so we wanted to have a beautiful experience for our whole family. And then I wanted to start this company. And so basically when I started my company, we had like zero dollars <laughs> to our name at that point. And so I just, I just was like, I have to make this work and I have to figure this out. And the only thing I knew is I knew I'm a hard ass worker that I, I will, um, I am scrappy, that I will figure out how to DIY my way through any situation, that I ask a lot of questions, and that I will I will learn all the things I need to learn in order to make my chances as high as possible to, ha- to start an effective business. And so at the time, and Corlin, forgive me if this story is getting really long-winded, but... Um, no, I'll keep it going. Okay. So at the time, uh, I feel like it was getting really popular to have... Uh, Digital businesses. I think you were you were seeing a lot of that, uh, you know, remote entrepreneurial spirit come to life, and people doing digital courses and programs and developing content. And so i I knew that I had a skill set for branding and marketing, and I knew that I had a skill set for creative writing. And I thought, okay, how do I bring those things together? And I decided to create uh, digital programs and courses, and so. There was kind of a, a myriad of topics that I that I uh, moved through. They ranged from self development and personal growth and self esteem, all the way through branding and marketing and how do you really develop a, a business that people pay attention to. What were you reading at that time? What was inspiring you? Where were you seeing these examples of these nomadic types of businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think initially I was personally interested in personal growth quite a bit. So my first foray into digital businesses, it's going to sound so cheesy, but was probably like a Tony Robbins of seeing, oh, wow, he has some really cool shit to share and he's sharing it in a digital format. That's really cool. He's making money in an automated way. He's developing this really cool content that people feel really excited by. So I started to follow him and I started to quickly follow a lot of digital entrepreneurs like Seth Godin or Marie Forleo or Chris Carr or Danielle Laporte. I mean, they were kind of across a lot of different industries, but they were really developing coursework and programming. And there was this, this you know, kind of formula that was existing of, of online videos that led into sales pages that led into programs and courses. And I thought, yeah, this is all really cool and sexy. I wonder if I could do the same thing, but do something in a way that was really fresh or that had a different voice, or that talked about something in a different way, because I didn't think I was saying anything that was any different than what was out there. What I thought I could bring to the table was saying it in a way that people hadn't heard before. So when we're talking about business and branding and develop and personal development, those topics can feel really serious, and they can feel really heavy, and they can, you know, they can, they can be, you know, really important topics they want to talk about. And my thought was, what if I humanize the process? What I what if I made people smile and laugh? What if my sales page was uh, unlike anything that they'd seen before? Could would that convert and compel people and get people excited and interested in a different way? 
because I, st- I believed in the, the programming I was developing. I believed in the courses I was creating. It was more so how do I break through the noise of what's already out there and get people to really get excited about what I'm doing and build trust and build rapport and all these things? Because I'm, I'm a nobody. I, you know, this is, this is something I'm starting from scratch and I'm, I'm brand new. And right. so I used fun and humor and I didn't know at the time, like at the time I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the, the foresight or the thought of, Oh, fun and humor, fun sells, humor works. Like it really wasn't that it was just, that was the thing I knew and the thing I was good at. And the thing that I thought really was relatable and really broke down barriers with an audience and really became disarming and it really humanized the process. And so, and I also saw it as like, it was very, a, a generous uh, way to approach marketing that even if someone didn't spend a dollar with me, and even if they never bought a course, at least I made them smile. At least I made them laugh. At least I made them feel good. And, and to me, it was such a value give that I thought that at least, you know, I feel good about what I'm putting out into the world. And so, um, I, you know, I ended up creating various programs and, and they were all geared toward women. And I had over 9,000 people come through my courses from start to finish. And, it was awesome. I, you know, I, at the time I was like, oh my God, I'm doing it. I'm like building this digital nomadic lifestyle and I'm generating income while I sleep and all these things that I, you know, I thought were really sexy and cool. And I'm, and I I have integrity in what I'm doing. I believe in what I'm doing. I'm excited by it. People seem to feel good. They, they're excited by, you know, their experience. And, and so that, you know, that was my first foray into business. And it wasn't always, always an uphill climb. I mean, there was ups and downs, ups and downs, but you know, I, I, once I learned the ropes and I figured things out, I got to a place I was really proud of. So give me an example of some of these ropes that you learned. Like what did it look like to actually launch a course and to go from getting, you know, your very first subscribers all the way to to 9,000 people going through your courses? Yeah, I think what, you know, as I reflect back, I think that the lessons I started to learn, um, I'll share one big one that I think was huge for me. And I don't know if I, I could have really verbalized it back then, but the thing I, I think I realized that is just a, uh, to me is the most important thing in business is to have integrity in what you do. And I, I saw a lot of people using vulnerability and in my opinion, contrived authenticity in order to sell their products. And there was this formula that was just being just spewed all over the internet where it was like things like, I never, I've never told this story before, or the only other person I've ever shared this with was my husband, or, uh, you know, the one sales trick that I learned that changed everything. Like it was these really like it was as if they were letting you in on a secret, but it was like this weird, manipulated, contrived, authentic experience. And I, I didn't like that. And I felt like I could see right through it and it felt very fake and forced. And I, I didn't really, I I found myself very turned off by that. And so I felt like the thing that mattered the most to me was to have a lot of integrity. And in saying like, what do I value? What do I care about? What is, what's kind of the moral fiber running through everything I do? What is the consistent experience I want people to have with me? And so I didn't, I I tried to use fun and energizing communication and playing with people instead of trying to manipulate them or twist and twist them around my finger or 
tap into like their, their pain points. Like I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. I wanted them. I, I know that stuff works and I know that it would have been effective, but I thought, yeah, but that's what they're already getting with everyone else. And so I want to take a different approach. I want to, I want them to feel really good throughout this sales cycle. I want them to laugh throughout this sales cycle. And so I think that that's one of the things that I, you know, I, I started initially doing it the way everyone else was. And then I quickly pivoted because it didn't feel good for me. It felt shitty. It felt forced. It felt, it just felt uh, manipulative. And I didn't like that experience. And so I, I, I think what I realized is like, oh, there could be a better way to do it. And so when I started to pivot, it was uncomfortable because I was like, oh shit, this is not something people are telling me that works. This is not something people are telling me to do. This is not what I'm learning in these other courses that I'm taking about how to build online businesses. Like this feels very rogue. And so there was just, uh, I felt like I was going a bit into the unknown and it was a bit scary, but, uh, I quickly found that the experience felt better for me internally, which allowed me to enjoy creating and developing programming, which allowed me to talk to people in a more human, integrated, normal way, which allowed people to trust me more, which allowed me to sell more ultimately. And so that was just like one hurdle. The other one I think was a big one is I I like to learn how to do everything in my business because I think it makes me a really well-rounded business owner that I can have an educated conversation about everything. So I know a little bit about coding, a little bit about accounting, a little bit about design. I know enough about kind of everything to be dangerous. But I think for me is because I felt like, well, I could do everything. It led me to believe I should do everything. So I was really drained a lot. And I was really bogged down because I it was hard for me to justify outsourcing things when I felt like, well, I could do it myself. Like somehow there was like a gold medal in doing it all alone. And that was that was really draining emotionally and energetically for me. So that was a big hurdle that I had to learn. And that was a really long process for me to learn how to let go and learn how to just bring on awesome, amazing people who are like, that's their thing. They're great at that. I'm, yeah, sure. I'm good at it. They're great at it and let them be great at it. And when they're great at something, it's going to only enhance my business and make me ultimately stronger. So that was a big hurdle too, is like not having to do it all and being okay with that and not feeling like I was letting myself or my business down because I, I let go of some things. I've, I've felt the same way before. It's crazy how much just managing and understanding your own psychology comes into being a founder where a lot of times the mistakes you make, it's not like logically difficult to see that you're making that mistake. It's emotionally difficult to see that like, you know, sometimes as a founder, you're driven by ego. I have the same thing. I can mm-hmm. do everything decently well. I don't really want to believe that other people can do it as well as I can. And, it, you know, I, I kind of like getting the credit for having done everything myself. But that's really an ego-based decision and, and way of going forward. It's not really what's best for your business or your customers. Yeah. Are, can I ask you a question, Carlin? Yeah. Do you Are you familiar with the Enneagram? It's a personality test type I've test. heard of it. I've never taken it. Okay. Okay. Anyway, I, I just was wondering if you knew your number because there's nine different numbers you can be. And I'm a three. So I was wondering if you were uh, also, which tends their, the unhealthiest version of a three is they are a workhorse. And um, they, like they tend to be a jack of all trades in the worst, it, you know, it can be a great thing. And it can also be a really, really 
horrible limiting quality <laughs> is because they tend to burn out really quick yeah. and because uh, they think they can do everything or that they should do everything. So I was just wondering if that, because that's a, that's a very real quality for me. The, the healthiest version of me is like, you know, I can add value you know, in a lot of different places. The unhealthy mm-hmm. version is that I think I need to do everything. So just wondering. Yeah, that sounds like me. And to be honest, I think it's not that bad for starting a business. If you are a first-time founder and you look at your business and everything that has to be done and there's some gaping black box, some part of your business where you just have no idea how to do it, it can be pretty scary. But if you're a jack-of-all-trades or if you at least have the confidence that you can figure out how to do pretty much anything, then it makes it much easier to take that first step, to be able to do it by yourself, to not have to hire or find a co-founder. And I think it's just easier to get started. Yeah. Where it becomes troublesome is exactly what you're talking about, which is when you start to get worn thin, when you're really tired of doing everything yourself, when your business is growing, you are at a point with your courses that you are basically supporting your entire lifestyle. It was very profitable for you. I think you're making six figures, but you were not really enjoying your life and you were doing way too much. How did you get out of that situation? Uh, yeah, that was a that was a tough decision for me because I was looking at this thing that I built and I wanted to be proud of it because I built it from scratch and and wow, that's so cool. Like this thing came out of my my brain and my energy and my effort. And so that was a really cool thing, but I wasn't proud of how I felt anymore. I no longer wanted to be in that world. It was just uh I didn't I didn't enjoy uh, the, it it started to feel a bit transactional for me. Buy a course, they go through it on their own. And we are, you know, kind of communing in these very plotted, you know, uh, you know, of an online meeting or we have a group or these, these kind of like, you know, little micro ways of interacting with my audience. And I, and I just felt like that didn't really energize me. It started to feel like everyone's doing this shit now. Everyone has an online course. Everyone has an online program. And I started to feel like I was part of a really tapped out, saturated market. And I don't say that to be negative to anyone who is in that world at all. It just, it no longer felt like it was a, it was a, it was a world that I felt like I could really continue to create and develop and build in a way that like was internally fulfilling or also that I felt like I was bringing the most value to my consumer. I probably could have kept doing it and and still, you know, sustained the success that I had created. And I'm sure it would have dipped at some point. It just didn't fuel me. I felt like um, the thing I really liked, what I started to realize is the thing I really liked about it was the ideation and the building of it and the the coming up with the fun creative concepts and coming up with the programming and figuring out what was my positioning and building all the fun, entertaining components of it. And then once I finished that, I was just watching it work on its own and I, I no longer got to play with it anymore. And I ended up going back to the consulting world for a year, a little less than a year. And while I was trying to figure myself out, it's like, what do I want to do in this next phase. And so on the side, I was still doing, I was, I was then doing some consulting, doing brand strategy for people, helping people develop their brand personas and start to, you know, uh, how do we creatively market your business and how do we, uh, you know, cultivate a really desirable attention worthy brand that, that people really pay attention to and get excited by and all these things I was doing on the side, but I, I just didn't want to do it 
by myself. I was like, God, I don't want to be a solopreneur anymore. I don't want to just go back into that space in a different way. And so my my best friend, um, ha- was, her name is Lindsay, and she had been a copywriter for for ten years and a comedy writer. And she was uh, she had her own copy shop, and so she was doing kind of a, a different version of what I was doing. She was like really heavy in the creative, where I was doing part creative, part brand development. She was doing, she was getting you know down and dirty with really fun campaigns and really cool creative ideas. And we were just both talking about how like what is this this thing that we both love is is the thing we like most about it is is the fun, enjoyable, playful, entertaining, exciting version of, of, of each of the things we were doing. And so what if, and we were like, what if we built an entire agency around this idea that fun sells? Like, what if, like, what if that was the ethos? Like, what if we didn't do all the other things that we have been doing historically? And what if we focused, really focus in on this, this, the way that we believe, um, is we believe is the best way to market and brand a business. So two and a half years ago, we, both pulled the plug on what we were doing and we dove headfirst in this idea that fun sells and we built obedient. And um, I can remember we were in my kitchen and I have a big blank wall in my kitchen and we had giant post-it notes and we were like ideating a business name and different concepts. And and initially what we were going to do is, is do create online programming and courses teaching this stuff. And, and then we're both like, no, that's not the world we want to be in anymore. We don't want to teach other people how to do this. We want to do this stuff. Like that's the stuff we're, we, we love and we get excited by. So we scrapped that idea on like day two or three. And we're like, no, we want to work with other brands and, and do this for them. Like that's the fun. That's the secret sauce. That's the fun part. It's one of the most interesting things I think about your story, especially in the context of being on the Andy Hackers podcast where the vast majority of people I talk to have this path where they are employees and then they become consultants as sort of a temporary stepping stone to building some sort of scalable product-based business, whether that's coding an app or you know building a course, just something you can create once and sell to infinitely many people. Here. Mm-hmm. You did the opposite. You, know, you went that scalable product route. You had a successful business and you decided, hey, this is not fun for me at all. I would rather just continually do the actual sort of dirty work day in and day out forever. Yeah, that's it's sick, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's sick. I mean, what's your, what's your end game? What's driving you? Well, you know, the interesting thing is in a weird way, I feel like my ideas reach more people in more ways. Because I get to work with these amazing brands who have a ton of reach and they, they're using our ideas. And we're seeing our ideas reach millions of people on Instagram or, you know, uh, website traffic or billboard campaigns. And, and so it's in a weird way that we get to put, I feel like, uh, you know, I get to put more of myself out into the world, um, but through different channels than I did previously. So I get to, I get to really flex my chops in, in different personalities, in different industries, in different, uh, verticals, in different mediums. Like it's, it feels like the world is my oyster now, as opposed to being pigeonholed into one thing. And I think the other thing too, is that because we are a brand, uh, an agency built on fun, fun is part of everything we do all day, every day. We work with rad clients. 
we work with our team is are the funniest, smartest, most fascinating people I've ever worked with. I get to I get to be a part of creative ideas and I get to have these wild brainstorm sessions that I'm literally laughing so hard I'm crying on, on almost a daily basis. I work with my best friend. I still work remotely. Our whole team is remote. So I have a ton of flexibility. I get to laugh for a living. I mean, I truly look at my life now and I know it's not as automated as it was, but it's way more fulfilling. And it's just every single element is enjoyable. So it's, it's weird. It's weird. It's not scalable in this, in the way my previous business was, but it's, it's incredibly fulfilling. However, I, I, what I know to be true is that we are working on a lot of different components of obedient. And so I know that there, you know, maybe in the near future, we'll create a scalable product. Or maybe in the near future, we, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about writing a book. We are launching a podcast in, in the next few months. And so there's all these other opportunities to scale and expand and really tap into these things that really excite us. But also, ultimately, like, we get to preach the message of fun and lightheartedness and, you know, strategic humor and, you know, making brands an enjoyable, feel-good experience and just getting to change the landscape in our own little way. So, yeah, I know. I'm like a masochist for going, <laughs> even though it seems like I'm going backward, I really feel like I've propelled so much further than I was previously. I just got done recording another episode earlier today, and I asked my guest what his sort of closing advice was for entrepreneurs. And he quoted someone else who said, you know, cliche or not, the journey is the destination. And whatever it is you're doing right now, like that's the whole point. It's not some end goal that you're going to get to and, and acclimate to after a year and a half. It's whatever you're doing right now, you should enjoy it. And it sounds like, you know, with your move to, to becoming an agency, like that's really what you're doing. You enjoy every day of your life. You enjoy actually working. And if you're doing that, then, you know, kudos, because that's, that's a lot better than 99% of people, even people who've struck it rich in billion-dollar companies. Totally. I fully agree. So I want to dive into these beginning phases. You talked about, you know, you and Lindsay in someone's apartment sort of drawing up all sorts of plans, what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. By this point, you've already worked at a startup. You've worked at a big consulting firm. You've done consulting on your own. You started your own business. You know quite a lot. Given all that knowledge, like how do you approach planning a business and what's going to go into it? What kinds of decisions you need to make? How did you choose your own brand? And I asked this with, with uh, I guess, an eye towards a lot of people in the audience who are completely new to this stuff to figure out what kinds of questions they should be asking and like some of the concrete tactical decisions that you might make to build a successful company from the get-go. Yeah, well, you know, before we even dove into the nitty-gritty of business, Lindsay and I we really had a, a, an amazing series of honest, heart-to-heart, no-bullshit conversations. And it really boiled down to what were the things we needed to experience as a business owner in order to feel fulfilled? What is the type of lifestyle we wanted to cultivate? What do we value? What's important to us? What drives us? What are things that piss us off and trigger us? What are things that energize us? And we got really clear on all that stuff because, you know, I think we're a little unique in that we were starting a business together and we, we had an impeccable relationship and we wanted that to, to sustain and we wanted that to 
be able to have uh, longevity and we wanted to continue our friendship. We didn't want anything to tarnish it, right? So I think what we had to do is get really honest about the things that the parts of our personality that needed to be uh, cultivated, the parts of our personality that needed to be nurtured, the parts of our personality that we could add value, uh, the qualities we can bring to the table, and the things that like we didn't want to do, we didn't like doing, that that w- would draw out the worst parts of us. So we can have that dialogue to start. And I know I know it's um, it maybe seems like a little bit harder to do you know in, uh, by yourself, but I, I definitely think that's a really important step. So you know, her and I in particular, because we were starting just the two of us before we built out a team, because we didn't have a team to start, is, you know, I te- I'm very extroverted. So I like people. I like to talk to people. I feel very isolated if I'm sitting in my house working at a laptop all day. So it was really important for me that I I lead all of the the business relationships and the, the, the client calls and, you know, the sales calls and all of those things. And Lindsay was like, go for it hate that shit, don't want anything to do with it. Lindsay, on the other hand, is an introvert. And is she presents as an extrovert. She's so lovely and warm and funny, and she's just amazing. But she could sit on her laptop in isolation on a remote island, never talk to a soul, and be like the happiest camper on the planet. So a lot of the internal stuff, that was her sweet spot. So anyway, so it was really understanding those parts of ourselves so we could work really well together because you know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a business partner, but it, it is like getting married and, and, you know, your, your, uh, livelihood, your emotions, your creativity, your, you know, uh, finances, everything gets wrapped up into another person very quickly. And so for us, we wanted to make sure that that was the, fo- the foundation from there. Uh, and you feel free to, you know, I can explain anything in more detail, but from there, that was kind of the, that was the set point. So I felt like we really knew each other going into it, but more so than just knowing each other as friends. It's like really knowing each other is like, what are our biggest fears and our biggest desires and what drives us and what triggers us? And what else, so how do we really make this a stable foundation? There was just a, uh, a post on the Andy Hackers Forum earlier this week where somebody was asking, you know, what are the crucial questions you should ask your co-founder before you start? And no one listed any of those things that you just said. So oh, wow. I, I think that, that that's all great stuff. Oh, good. Well, that makes me happy. And yeah, so that was that was super important. Uh, from there, we started to play around with, okay, now that we know those things about us, what type of business do we want to layer on top of it? Like, what do we value? You know, and I think for us, the through line was always fun. The through line was always humor. It's we wanted to build a brand that felt good internally, that our clients felt super excited about when they're working with us. And then ultimately, the end product was something that felt good and fresh and fun and different. And so obedient, the the name, the why we landed on that is, you know, it's a bit of tongue in cheek, right? The, you know, our whole idea is we wanted to not do what everyone else is doing. We wanted to buck the system. And also being two women, right? It's like, we're supposed to be good, polite little girls. And that's just neither of our personalities. And so we thought, okay, well, what, you know, what really embodies that? What is kind of the the most uh, tongue-in-cheek way to ex- explain that. And so for us, like the term obedient, like when we wrote that down, we ideated probably 200 names. And when we wrote that down, we're like, there's nothing else that is even a contender. And it just felt right. It felt like reflective of who we are, what we you know, absolutely never wanted to be um, in terms of, you know, we, we, we uh, are, do not want to be an obedient brand, which is why it was so fun to be named that. 
It reminds me of, I don't know if you know the podcast, uh, Pod Save America, but they're called Crooked Media. And I, and it's like the same idea of like, you know, uh, call yourself the thing that you absolutely don't want to be. And it's just a really fun way to spin a business name. But anyway, so that was kind of, you know, that's how we started. And so when we were, when we were initially in our initial brainstorm sessions, we really realized we wanted to work directly with brands. We wanted to work with, um, entrepreneurs. We wanted to work with business owners because we, we thought people could be doing it in a lot more uh, interesting, exciting, attention-worthy, integral way. And, and we thought we could add a lot of value to that community. So uh, yeah, and it kind of just spun from there. I mean, we've changed services and offerings a million times as we've evolved and grown, um, knowing like what we're great at and what we, you know, the value we can provide and like really honing our process over the last two and a half years. So you decide you're going to target brands. You're going to work with them to build better, funnier, more effective brands. I think one of the most common fears that entrepreneurs have is sales. Mm -hmm. People really don't like sales, especially developers building technical businesses. And the worst, scariest type of sales is enterprise sales. You actually have to talk to someone at a big company and convince them to buy what you're selling when you're just a small group of people or maybe just one person. You guys at Obedient have worked with all sorts of huge companies. You've worked mm-hmm. with Dell, you've worked with AT&T. Is enterprise sales scarier to you? Is it burdensome to you? And if not, what do you know that all these other indie hackers don't? So I know I, I'm probably going to sound like a mad woman, but I, I love sales. Um, I, and I've never thought of it that way. Um, I never really knew I love sales. I just like talking to other humans. But I think... You said something interesting, and I'm going to kind of flip uh, a thought that you uh, flip something that you said in a, in a little bit different way. Is when I go into a sales process, uh, and I recommend this for everyone. I don't think you have to go into a sales process uh, or a sales call or a sales conversation um, thinking you have to convince anyone of of uh, that your product or service that they need to like it. They need to want it. They need to buy it. They need to agree with it. I think you have to convince yourself because if you believe in what you do and you have confidence in what you've created, that you don't feel like you have to sell. You're not trying to prove anything to yourself. And I think that our egos get in the way of being good salespeople because I think what happens is when we're often going into a sales process saying, what can you give me? What can I take from you? Um, can I, I want your money. I want your time. I want your trust. I want your respect. And when you, when you enter that process with a take mentality and you're looking for that potential client to fill a need, you are, I think that there's a lot of fear and anxiety and, uh, doubt that, uh, that comes through. I think the biggest shift for me is when I go into a potential a sales call or a uh, you know a uh, you know new client intake conversation i really try to leave my ego at the door i don't go into it saying i have to close them i go into it saying i want to educate them i want to get to know them i want them to enjoy a conversation with me i want them to feel heard i want them to to be made aware of what we're doing i mean that to me like is the most um transparent, authentic, integral way to approach a conversation. I, it's like, it's a give because it's like, I want to give them education. I want to give them an opportunity to work with us. I want to give them an opportunity to be proud of, of their ideas and their brand. I want them to give them an opportunity to have a nice conversation. And I want to give them a choice. And the choice is they either work with us. Awesome. Amazing. Great. 
or it's that they walk away and, and that's okay too. And so um, I feel like it's made me enjoy the sales process. I think it's made me effective in the sales process. And I think it's built really, it's allowed us to build really, really strong relationships because, and I truly mean this, and I know it might sound a little bit like bullshit, but like my agenda is never what, I really try to make my agenda never, what can I get from you? It's always like, what can I give? And that way I don't, I don't feel let down or deflated if it doesn't work out the way I, I would hope it does. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of my tactic. I really feel like it's so cliche, but it's an inside job. If you don't feel proud of who you are, you don't trust in yourself, you don't trust in your product, trust in your brand, you know, rejection is so painful. But if, but I, I really think rejection is painful because you're rejecting yourself in the first place. And if, and if you learn how to not put all that power in someone else's hands and really just have pride in, in who you are and what you do, then that whole experience just becomes more enjoyable. Cliche advice is the best advice, I think. I know. It is though, right? It's the stuff that people say over and over again that like, and yet no one listens to because we're all obsessed with the novel advice. It's stuff we've never heard before because it just feels so, you feel so smart and productive when you hear something you've never heard before. But when you hear something you've heard before, you don't really stop to ask yourself, am I actually doing that? And usually the answer is no. Truly. Um, Something else I'll say too is that you may just not be the type of person that likes to talk to other humans. And that's okay too. I mean, I... I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an extrovert. I, I like talking to people. Like I said, my business partner would never want the role that I have. And so I think that's an important thing to check in with yourself and understand about who you are because you're always going to be trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole if you're forcing yourself to be someone you're not or to enjoy something that you d- just inherently don't. I think it's good to stretch yourself and to push your edges, but maybe just you need someone else to be a part of the sales process or figure out how to create a sales process that, that you aren't heavily involved in the equation. So what do you think is more important for these very first few steps to getting your business off the ground? If you had to choose one, sales or marketing? Mm. Oh, wow. That's a great, that's a great question. Well, I think if you don't have something worth <laughs> talking about, I think both are, are you know, uh, are going to fall flat. I, I think they almost live in tandem, but I, I honestly believe that to me, and I know some people disagree with me and I, and I totally, uh, that's okay. I would say marketing. And the reason I would say marketing is because anytime I've ever gotten off a sales call or uh, a sale, if, anytime I've ever sent out a sales email, anytime I've ever put up a post that uh, that has a you know uh, an a- action component that I, w- I want someone to click or lead them to a specific action. People are going to to engage with elements of my brand as a next step. They're going to look at my web copy. They're going to look at my social platforms. They're going to look at my sales pages. They're going to look at my products. And if those look like shit, you've lost the sale. If those look like they were DIY'd, people have lost trust in the quality of your product. If they look like they are, uh, if they're long-winded and they're confusing and people can't really decipher what's the important takeaway or they don't understand why you're, what you're doing is, is something they need or why what you're doing is something that is better than someone else or different than someone else, then I don't even think you have an opportunity at a sale. So I think the marketing component is important. I don't think you have to do all marketing uh, straight away, but I think having some foundational pieces that are really banging, that are really strong. Like I always say to people, like have a great website, 
like have at a minimum, have a phenomenal website as a starting place because nine times out of 10, that's going to be the place people go back to, to um, make a purchase. That is their point of conversion. So at your point of conversion, to me, that should be the, the strongest reflection of, of who you are as a brand, what you believe, uh, and what you care about, what you stand for. So yeah, that would be my, those are my thoughts on it, but feel free have, to push back. Uh, you guys have a beautiful website. Obedient is, it's one of the first things I thought when I went to your website. I was like, wow, this is like very professionally designed, very well-written. Uh, and it did all the things that you said, right? It improves your standing in my mind as a potential agency that I might use. A lot of indie hackers are trying to build websites for themselves for the first time. Most of them are not professional designers and not professional copywriters. What are some of the bare bones, basic like, principles they should follow to make sure their websites work and look good? Do they need to hire a writer? Do they need to hire a designer? Or can they just get better at these things themselves? I mean, I'm always going to uh, recommend outsourcing things that you're not good at or that you... Um, that is not your sweet spot or your skill set. You know, when people are designers by trade or uh, creatives or copywriters by trade, like that is the thing that is their currency. That is the thing that they're that they're known for. That is the thing that they specialize in. That's the thing that they can knock out of the park for you. So, bring on an expert on your team. I know it it means that you have to shell out some cash up front. I understand it's an investment, but you're going to, in my opinion, you're going to, you're going to spend a lot of time and dollars and energy trying to DIY it. You're going to potentially lose some potential customers. You are going to potentially not present the best version of your brand right out the gate. So it could plant some, some seeds in the minds of, of people who could have been your consumers that you may not have a second chance with them. So I think that the pros outweigh the cons in terms of I know it is an investment up front and I know that you know we want to be scrappy and we want to DIY and all those things, but the value of having a clean, professionally designed, professionally written, really sexy experience right out the gate is that to me, people start to take you more seriously right out the gate. They trust you right out the gate. They are more compelled and inclined to uh, work with you or buy from you right out the gate. I think people don't think that People are emotionally reacting to brands, but everyone is emotionally reacting. Again, like what I said is no matter how practical or pragmatic you are, when you are, when you are picking up a, a product off a shelf or you are going to a product, uh, going to a brand's website or you are engaging with them on social media, you are making judgment calls. And what you don't want someone to do is say, this person's quality is low. It, it is confusing. It looks like it was done out of their, uh, mom's basement. And it looks like they took no time and effort. And so that's why I highly recommend like bringing on a company. Again, doesn't have to be us. I think, you know, we're obviously great at what we do, but, uh, you know, bring on an expert who can help create something that is compelling and cohesive and looks professional. And to me, that'll alleviate, alleviate a lot of headaches down the road and just, I think, get you further ahead in your business quicker, pending all the other uh, behind the scenes things are, are lined up and you have a, a quality product and service to offer. One of the things you mentioned earlier when I was asking you about Indie Hackers' brand and the, the decisions I made and tried to get you to, to critique me and give me some constructive criticism mm-hmm. was that brand is not just a one-time flash in the pan thing. It's something that has to evolve with your business, that's to permeate everything that you do and you have to keep coming back at it and, and, and improving it. 
what are some of the ways that you guys have done that with Obedient? And what are some of the triggers that you know it's time to update your brand? Oh, gosh. we uh, I feel like we're updating our brand every week. I think if we ever have a project and one of us, because uh, Lindsay and I are still both very involved in, in uh, every single project we do. Uh, I'm managing all the client relationships. You know, Lindsay's is right in there uh, leading uh, the, the creative direction. And we're both just super hands-on at this stage in our business. If we ever feel off, if something feels weird when we're explaining it or it feels confusing or someone goes, hey, can you explain that? Or I don't quite get that. It, to us, that is an immediate, for, for us, it, immediately we go, okay, someone is confused or misunderstands us or has presented feedback or something feels off internally or we didn't enjoy some component of the product. So to us, that says it needs to be evaluated. Because even if uh, we think things are going swimmingly, like if there is, if there is one little element that uh, is slightly off kilter, to us, that'll start affecting other components. And so what we've always found is that when something feels slightly off and we revisit it, we always end up changing it. We always end up improving it. We always end up tweaking it. Even if it, it hurts our egos at first, even if we got feedback that said, oh, hey, this didn't quite make sense to me. And in our head, when we developed it, it made perfect sense. We're like, oh, that was crystal clear. That couldn't have been explained any better. If we sit with that information for five minutes and go, you know what? I could see how they would think that. Or, you know, that that feedback is starting to resonate. We have always done something with that feedback. We have always um, improved our process or our output or, or our final product in some way. So, um, yeah, I think it's like just really doing a lot of emotional uh, check-ins to make sure that like this feels good for everyone involved. And if it doesn't, there is some value in in um, an offbeat experience that you can extract and hopefully improve your business from. So how do you do that if you're running, let's see, a, a different company where you're not really talking to customers that often or you're not getting the sort of feedback where people tell you that something seems off or they tell you they don't understand something? Does that mean your brand is fine? I think you have to ask for it. I think I think there's always opportunities to engage with your audience or to get feedback or to get outside perspective. Um, even with uh, you know mentorship group, you know a mentor or um, a peer group of other entrepreneurs. I mean, there is always an opportunity for feedback and constructive criticism. I I think people just don't ask for it because they don't want to hear it. It, it. it if when it's your own business. It's a. It can feel like a blow to the ego. It can be really hurtful. It can be really bothersome because it is often this thing that we have created that has come from like the the depths of our soul. It is this really. It is our baby, and and for someone to criticize our baby, like we don't want that. So I think we often avoid criticism because it can sting. But I think that's where you have to toughen up a little bit and go. Okay, I don't have to look at it as. I am flawed or my business is flawed, I can look at it as an opportunity for improvement, an opportunity for growth, an opportunity to better serve my customer, an opportunity to, you know, better hone my message, like whatever that is. But yeah, it's it's hard to hear that. It really is. I mean, I I've, you know, I've I, you know, we get feedback too. I mean, we are doing creative work all the time. So clients don't always love our ideas right out the gate or sometimes the ideas we love the most and we know are great, they a client might not get it or they might not agree. And so you just have to be okay with that and, and push back where you want to push back, but also, you know, 
uh, pivot when it makes sense. Yeah, we're back to this topic of ego again and how working too hard to protect your ego will ultimately result in you building a worse business because among other things, it'll make you more resistant to feedback. And you're right. Like when you get this feedback, it's coming from people who really mean the best. And if you listen to them, probably your business will get better because no one's doing this to insult you or make you feel bad. But damn, does it hurt when you've worked on something for so long and poured your heart and soul into it and someone tells you that it's crappy or that it's not good. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes the the customer is wrong. (laughs) You know, I know it's, it's so, uh, people don't want to acknowledge that, but they're, you know, sometimes they are, they don't understand you or they don't get your business. And, but within every, uh, within, within every customer interaction where you disagree with their set, their sentiment or their statement or their feedback, there is a little hint of truth or a little nugget that you can extract from that, that can help you improve what you do and, and really who you are. Even if you don't agree with the way they communicated the message, you don't agree with the, the feedback specifically, there is something that you could take value from. So I, I talk about this a lot, actually, that founders should really be talking to customers and trying to understand what they're saying and also trying to see sort of the lessons and the learnings behind what their customers say, because chances are your customers are not marketing experts. Chances are they're not strat- strategic experts, right? They know what they want. Um, they know what their problems are, and you can help them solve that, and that's valuable, but they're probably not going to be able to tell you how to run your business. Given that, how could I as a founder, let's say how could I as a founder of Indie Hackers talk to my customers and ask them questions that would help improve my brand? Like what kind of questions would I even ask? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what your process is. You know, do you have feedback feedback forms on your website? Do you have, do you open community dialogue? Do you have, um, you know, a private forum that you, uh, that you allow people to express themselves freely? Do you tap a, a handful of members who are super engaged or, uh, you know, super involved in your brand or product or community that you know, you know, really care and really want the best for you? And so I think, you know, I think like the medium can vary, but I mean, I, I think one question that I, that I just, you know, off the top of my head that is always of value is, is what you receive different than what you expected in terms of, you know, service, product, uh, customer experience. I think it's always interesting to understand like what was the, what were people anticipating or what were people expecting or what did people uh, think were going to happen versus what did you deliver? I think that's always a really interesting question. And that, and that, it mean, you know, that could yield results in both ways. It could be, oh, you over delivered. It was better than I thought. Or it could be, this is not what I anticipated. Or this was quite confusing. Or it was way more complex. Or the platform you used wasn't easy to navigate. Or whatever you find out, you know, sure, that you have to kind of live with that result. But I think that's a really interesting question that I love. Yeah, that'd be the kind of one that I that I would throw out there. Is what you receive different than what you expected? Okay, Andy Hackers listeners, you heard her. Is what you receive listening to this podcast, coming to the website, different than what you expected? Email me, Cortland at com. Let me know. Allie, it has been great talking to you about your story. You've given a ton of advice. I hope people listening can find a way to incorporate it. I also hope, uh, if you're listening to this, pair this with the previous episode that came out with Daniel Baskin, who I think is a great example of everything that Allie's saying, of injecting fun into what you're doing. And really think people could benefit from doing this because too many people are making the same products that have the same message with no real emotional resonance of why I should care. Allie, thanks again for coming on the show. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Obedient, 
what's going on in your personal life, if you share that online as well, and maybe how they can get in contact with you if they want to ask you a question or engage your services. Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. You are a gem. So this has been wonderful. Um, you can find me or you can find our agency, obedientagency.com. Uh, you know, the main email is hi at obedientagency.com. And then uh, anywhere on the interwebs at Obedient Agency. Instagram is where we're the most active. In terms of me personally, you can find me anywhere as Allie Lefevre. And I... Um, I know you may be shocked to, to hear, but I, I'm not on social media a ton. I'm not a big <sighs> consumer of social media. What? I, um, yeah, I know. I just don't get the energy from it like some people do. I know that's, that's so bad to admit. I, I follow some brands that I love and I follow, uh, <laughs> all I really follow are very silly brands, baby animal accounts and office memes like that's it that's, that's all, all i look at on social media and i don't post a ton but when i do it's often very ridiculous and silly and just elements of my life as long as they're not baby spiders it's okay in my book yeah yeah I'll leave those out <laughs> all right well thank you so much ali i'll talk to you later thank you if you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.